When you enrich the lives of your employees through purpose-powered leadership, they'll grow your business for you. Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where you'll discover how to champion a culture of courage and love. Stop dealing with symptoms and get to the root of the problems in your business. This is the Higher Purpose Podcast with your host, Kevin Monroe. Welcome to episode 51 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Monroe. Thanks for joining us today. This is a unique, fascinating, and fun conversation with Brian Robertson, who joins us to talk about a radical new way to manage or what I call steward power in organizations. As you'll hear in the conversation, Brian is a practitioner. He doesn't consider himself a managerial theorist, but an entrepreneur that's faced a challenge common to most leaders. What's needed inside organizations to drive change in effective ways? Or if you're inside an organization, what do you do when you sense something could be done better in your organization, but there are more barriers than bridges for introducing that change? What makes this conversation fun with Brian is that we just don't jump right into the discussion. In the early part of the conversation, we're talking about the tension in organizations. And rather than talking about his company or their solution, Brian talks about the journey and the challenges and the frustrations so common in bureaucratic hierarchies. Listen in to learn about a radical new way to organize power. And as Brian explains, this is a purposeful approach to stewarding power And most of the organizations adopting it are purpose-powered organizations. So we've got a lot of synergy to build on in this conversation. And I want to thank Lynn Carpenter. She's the co-founder of Epic Purpose Investment Bank. That's right. There's a purpose-driven investment bank. She was the one that introduced me to Brian. Lynn and I met earlier this year, and shortly after meeting, Lynn said, you and Brian really need to meet. Thanks for making that happen. So let's dive in and uncover this mystery with Brian Robertson. So it's a real delight to welcome Brian Robertson to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Hey, Brian, we're delighted you're with us today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. And what's something in your that, that about you, something that's not always in the official bio that gets shared that, that you think is important for us to know you as we start this conversation? Oh man, that's like choosing one thing, you know? <laughs> so there's so much that defines a person, right? Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's hard to pick any one thing. Um, I am, uh, I, I think one of the things I like to let people know, I, I often get mistaken for a management theory guy and I'm so not, I, I'm not a theorist. I'm a practitioner. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, my passions in life are like, uh, they're numerous. I, I spent a week scuba diving in Spain. I'm a pilot. I, I, I'm an active kind of guy. I do stuff. And the whole management theory thing was an accident while building business uh, businesses, right? Like, it's funny, yeah. Well, okay. So a couple of things there. You and I are going a little different direction today in this episode of the podcast than I often do. But I usually ask people at some point, how do they understand their purpose? So let's start with that because you just touched on something that's so important. You understand, obviously, you understand your purpose is multifaceted. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, Yeah, actually, I capture my purpose as I show people a radical new way to organize power. Right. That's uh, the distillation. Uh, I've done a lot of purpose work many times over the years, and that's evolved for me uh, throughout my life. But that's my current way of capturing it. I show people a radical new way to organize power. 
Okay, so that tees up this conversation, and this is going to be a fun conversation. Uh, so what's the journey, before we get into this new radical way of power, what's the journey that led you to realizing we need a different way to, yeah. to steward power? Yeah. So for me, uh, I'm an entrepreneur and I, I kind of became an entrepreneur because I got really dissatisfied with the companies I worked in before that. I, I actually worked for a while in a company that won an award for being the best midsize company to work for in America. Wow. And I didn't like working there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I realized I had a problem, right? If, if I don't like working at the best company to work for in the country, something's wrong. And it was actually a wonderful company. It was a great environment and all that, but it still left me feeling like I, I, I couldn't drive change. I cared about the purpose of the company, but I couldn't drive change effectively. There was too much politics and bureaucracy and just all of the stuff that I think anyone who's been in an organization for any length of time has probably you know, beat their head against. The ability to change these static cultures and systems is really, really hard. So I, I left, I dropped out and, and became an entrepreneur just because I felt like there's got to be a better way to do this, right? a better way to organize a company and... I didn't know what that better way was, but I really wanted to experiment and figure it out. Hmm. You know, so hmm. for me, uh, it, it's it's my whole journey started with. Uh, I mean, I started very young as an entrepreneur, and I started experimenting and just looking for a better way to organize. And you know, I I it took me a while to realize what I even meant by that. But you know, for me, uh, in organizations, we have all these parent-child dynamics, right? That the management hierarchy naturally creates these boss-subordinate parent-child power dynamics, mm -hmm. right? And I was hungry for a different way. Now, the way I'd say it now, how can we just be adults together, right? How do we organize adult to adult instead of parent to child? And, you know, how do we relate to our own power different? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wanted an organization full of people showing up as empowered co-creators of their reality and not the victims and complaining and all of that stuff I saw. And sometimes for good reason, because often they were victims in that system, at least to some degree. And, you know, I just wanted to, how do we transcend all of that? And I don't know, that's, uh, and then there's, you know, you look at societal governance and I think we also could really use a radical new way of organizing power. Um, you think? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay. So Brian, and, and I go back, I love how you said, you know, you may be described as a managerial theorist, but that's not how you see yourself. And I really love that because there's so many theories that get put out there that don't seem baked in reality at all. You know, it sounds good as a theory, but when you go to, to uh, pressure test it, you see all of the cracks. So what is this radical new approach that you found and, and what's your favorite way of introducing that to people? Yeah. So, well, one thing I just want to highlight in what you said, I think it's really important. This didn't come from a theory. Uh, that's not how this came about. I, I was an entrepreneur building a business and it came from experimentation, right? So for me, this, this wasn't like, you know, somebody that studied management. I didn't. I was just building companies. And, uh, well, let's start there. Building companies, what wasn't working? What, yeah. What, what were you looking at? What was the source of frustration for you? Yeah. So, okay. So going back to, uh, you know, that, that sense, there's got to be a better way for me that came from, I kept seeing uh, one person, often myself, sometimes others that sensed something that could be better, mm. right? Their, their consciousness was attuned to something that could be better in this system. And then I saw all of the obstacles for them driving positive change with whatever it is they perceive, mm. right? The, 
bureaucracy, the politics, the, I mean, the, 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 you have to navigate so much, right? So what I saw was an organization that I wouldn't describe as a conscious organization, right? It, it was actually quite the opposite. Uh, I mean, you might've had some leaders that wanted to, to respond more consciously. In fact, I do a lot of work now in, in various consciousness movements that are trying to bring more conscious approaches to business. But at the same time, the irony is the organizations themselves are full of conscious humans that are sensing things that could be better and then struggling to drive change. Mm. So my burning question was, how can we build an organization where anyone who senses anything that could be better for the purpose of that organization has a rapid and reliable way to drive change and get that consciousness harnessed and integrated into the organizational system? Right? How can anything sensed by anyone anywhere in the organization have a, a place to go to get rapidly and reliably processed into meaningful change for the purpose of the company? That's wow. the problem I wanted to solve, and I experimented for years to figure out <laughs> what to do about that. Brian, what you're talking about reminds me of Ernest Hemingway when he was describing the process of bankruptcy. He said it was gradually and then suddenly. And that makes me wonder, of this radical way of organizing power that you're talking about, was it gradual and then sudden, or how did this discovery come about for you? You know, it, it was almost a, a buildup for me. It, it started with, I mean, it started with just, I, I don't want to be in the kind of companies I was in that I felt like I couldn't bring my full self uh, to work. I, I couldn't fully show up in service of a purpose I cared about. And, you know, so I, I just left. I just had to get away from that and had to do something. So I started my own company because, hey, that seemed like something to do. Maybe I could find a better way. And over years of experimenting, we started finding other approaches that seemed to unlock that potential uh, of, of us humans within, unlock our, our ability to actually drive change and use our consciousness for a purpose together. And, and that kind of built up a momentum. The more we found something that seemed to work, we'd find something else that seemed to work. And it's kind of like building a puzzle, right? Like the pieces just kind of kept clicking together over years. We got a box top. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Until we had something that felt like, wow, this actually works. And then the next surprise was the world wanted it. I was just building it for my own company at yeah. first, right? Mm. I wasn't intending to create something that would spread, but the method I developed is used by thousand, more than a thousand companies now in the world. Mm. Um, and it's still spreading quite exponentially. So it's definitely building this momentum. I, I think Turns out there are other entrepreneurs and business leaders and that are hungry for better approaches that, that allow us to use our collective consciousness for a purpose. Okay. Now, you have used the word purpose several times, and you know this is the Higher Purpose Podcast. So, what is unique about companies or organizations that are pursuing purpose that makes this, makes them right for this or this right for them? Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually not using the word because I know this is the Higher Purpose Podcast. I just love the word and, and my work's all about it. So <laughs> it's a great podcast to be on, I guess. It's, uh, for me, you know, it's, uh, so the method I work with is a purpose-driven system. And the companies that are, are actually interested in it are almost universally purpose-oriented mm -hmm. companies, right? It, it's, um, for me, that was kind of the, the given. That's the starting point, right? Like for me, I, I mean, I want my life to be a, a purposeful life, a meaningful life, the, the kind where I tune into, you know, what is, what is, what does the world want for me and what is naturally trying to emerge through me into the world? And I mean, that's how I, I've tried to live my life for a long time. Wow. And I want, I want my company to be able to live its life that way. I want all companies in the world uh, to have that kind of mm. purposeful orientation where instead of just being this like, 
I mean, I feel like a lot of these big global corporations today are like unconscious two-year-olds that, you know, they're walking around, they're putting things in their mouth, except they're really friggin' powerful. And it's causing a lot of damage and harm when, when there's this, this unconscious, unpurposeful way of, of showing up in the world. And yet, I do believe companies today are the most powerful force on the planet. Uh, the, the reach, the, the ability to change our world in, in the companies we've created today is staggering. Mm. And we sometimes see the downsides of that, but I think there's the potential of that. And I think the requirement there is, is a company that can tune in to a higher purpose, that can tune into what does the world need this company to be and what does it need to be in the world? What, what's the creative impulse that wants to express through this company? And there's so much different language we could use yeah, for purpose. Yeah. And I think all of it's great, you know, but whatever it is, it's that tuning into some essence of what's trying to emerge here through this, this organization. What, what's it the perfect vehicle for channeling into the world? And then before we hit record, we, we had this brief conversation that I want to bring back in. And that's that there there an abundant amount of these purpose-powered companies, purpose-pursuing entrepreneurs, but many of them have yet to think about, they've just adopted the mechanism or the power strategy or the the approach to stewarding power and i'm using stewarding power stewarding as a very conscious word right Uh, because i do believe power is is uh it's not ours it's ours to steward we don't own it so but they've not realized there's another way they've just taken what's been given to them the baton was passed to them they took the baton they started running that's exactly what happened to me when I started my first company, right? I, I, I didn't sit down with my fellow founders and say, how should we steward power in this organization? Should we centralize it in a CEO at the top of a hierarchy and have him break down power down a hierarchy and try to use that to get alignment with purpose? We didn't have that conversation because we didn't know there was an alternative, right? We just assumed that that was the only way. We knew That's we how had, everybody we needed, does it. Yeah, right. We needed alignment. We needed accountability. We needed clear work breakdown. We needed structure. Right? We need the things that management hierarchy provides for us. And the assumption that I unconsciously made was that management hierarchy was the only way to get those things we need, right? So what I, I learned over the course of years of experimenting in my journey was no, actually there are other ways to break down the stewardship of power. And I, I love that word for it, right? It's we're stewarding power for a purpose. Mm. Right? And, and the way we organize the stewardship of that power uh, has a lot of impact on how effectively we can possibly steward it. Right. And this is what I felt like in my previous, before I started my own companies, way back when I worked in that best company to work for in America. I loved the purpose, actually. It was an aerospace company. We were doing, supporting space exploration. And I just, I loved the purpose at that time in my life that really resonated. And I felt like I could not be an effective steward of the power given to me because of the system structure around me. And I mistakenly thought that being a CEO in that structure would change that. And it didn't. Right When I became a CEO and an entrepreneur and started building my own company that was a purpose-driven business from the beginning, right when I did that, I realized even as CEO, mm. the structure around me is limiting how much I can effectively steward the power entrusted to me for this purpose. And it's limiting everyone else in the company too. And I'm limiting everyone else in the company, ironically, even though I didn't want to be. Okay. So part of this we look at and we go, okay. The, the person in the office, their, their approach to personality their, their, or their wiring to personality, their approach to how they handle power has an impact. But what you're saying is systemically or structurally, it, it, 
it varies some based on who's in the office, but the way the office is structured in and of itself is not going to change that dramatically from one person to the next. Yes. And this is the journey I see with so many conscious leaders that are, are on their own journey to being more purposeful, purpose-aligned leaders. They first start with working on themselves and how they steward power, right? How they show up, uh, how purpose-oriented they can be, uh, how empowering they can be as a, a manager or a boss or whatever in that system. And then they reach this limit. There's only so far you can go with that because the system around you itself is limiting, Right. And if you want, ironically, you know, if you want an empowering environment, uh, if we want to empower the people around us, if they need you, the boss, to empower them, they're in a fundamentally disempowering environment. Right. So there's an irony of empowerment in this whole movement. Yeah. Let, let's let's talk about empowerment, because I remember the first time, you know, when, when empowerment was a trend. And I remember being in a meeting in a uh, you know, Fortune 100 company. I was in management and we had launched the empowerment movement and and somebody went too far <laughs> in the course of empowerment. And they were dressed down by the boss in front of everybody. And I remember I'm a bit of a smart aleck, and sometimes I say things out loud, and I go, did I really say that out loud? That, that was supposed to be inside, but I leaned over to the person next to me. I said, mark this in your calendar. The empowerment movement died now, <laughs> right? It ended here because it, it was all um, embedded on someone giving you power, and then what can happen? That person can take it back at a moment's notice. So what are your experiences with our failures at what was really good? Empowerment was a noble initiative. Again, the structure had placed limits on what could really happen. Yeah. So I I think some metaphors can be useful here, right? Like uh, one of them is uh, look at society, right? A modern society, we don't need a local baron to empower us. Right? Instead, we have a framework of, of laws and rules and order that, that gives us a basic empowerment that we can find for ourselves. Right? There's not a local baron that we go to who can unempower us, uh, who, who has these, this, this top-down rulership over our lives. But we do have clear boundaries, right? I, I know what's mine to control and what my neighbor gets to control, right? I know when I'm going to redecorate my kitchen, I don't need to call a meeting of all my neighbors to make sure they're all bought in. That's what we do in a lot of modern companies. We don't have clear boundaries of who controls what. So we call big meetings and we try to solve everything by collective consensus, which is incredibly inefficient, you know? But uh, in a society, we have these boundaries. We each have our piece to lead and we don't need a boss empowering us. Uh, Or another metaphor I like even better, look at the human body. We have 30 trillion some cells cooperating and working together. And there's no CEO cell that's empowering the others, right? That's telling them what to do or giving them the authority to decide for themselves, right? The system is structured in a way that is fundamentally empowering. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every cell has autonomy, but every cell also has responsibility to the whole, right? There's a connection. And I think that's one of the interesting and ironic pieces of, of empowering initiatives I feel for that boss who crushed the empowerment initiative. And in that story, he almost definitely did, right? Um, because the irony is people need to know the limits and boundaries as well, right? If you're, if you're a boss and you just go to your team tomorrow and say, congratulations, you're all empowered. You don't get an empowering environment. You get confusion. You know, you get people intuiting. Obviously, there's some limit on what they should do without talking to somebody, right? And if they don't know what those boundaries are, they're going to spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out what they are. And that doesn't increase empowerment. It it can actually undermine it. So the irony is, how do you get 
the things that we often perceive of as in the way of empowerment, the boundaries, the rules, the constraints, right? You, you need these things. You need them to be so clear because if, uh, if you don't know what you don't have the authority to do, mm-hmm. then you don't know what you do have the authority to do. Mm. If you don't know your limits, you don't know your freedom. Right. right? And you want empowerment. If you want a real empowering environment, it needs to be just as clear what the limits are as what the freedom is. And there needs to be a way to evolve it and change it, not coming from somebody's autocratic decree. That's what crushes that empowerment. So, I mean, the work I do in organizations is installing a framework that, that let, lets everyone get involved in defining and changing the boundaries and the rules and the constraints and the limits so that they're not these static things handed down, top down in a hierarchy, right? They're emerging from a group learning together. So you still have clarity on who makes which decisions, you know, where are the boundaries and all that. You just don't have managers imposing them in this top-down down way. So I, we're, I might be getting ahead of myself, but that's a little glimpse into like this shift of going from an empowering boss, which is the best we can do in a top-down hierarchy structure, to having a more fundamentally empowering structure that invites everyone to find and use real power and clarify the boundaries and the responsibilities which is just as important as the, the power and the freedom. Wow, Brian. Okay, this has become one of the most fun and mysterious conversations <laughs> that I've had yet to date on the podcast. And so I'm going to tee this up. We're going to take a break right now because we've got something to share with you. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to see if I can pry out of Brian what this framework is. Do you ever think that your work could be a little less ordinary? There's not much in between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at kevindmonroe.com slash extraordinary to get ready to take your team, your leadership, or your customers to the next level. That's kevindmonroe.com slash extraordinary. All right, Brian, we're back and we're having this wonderful conversation and I've not used your organization name or your title or anything yet. But right before the break, you were talking about this empowering framework, this structure that really creates both the freedom and the, the, the responsibility for empowerment to occur, to occur, for purpose-powered people and organizations to steward power in a way that does more good than than it might otherwise. Are you now prepared to tell us the name of this? I would love to. Yes. The framework is named Holacracy. Uh, Holacracy is a completely different way of running an organization. Uh, It's a framework that lets you get the things that we normally look to managers and management hierarchy to do, provide order, work breakdown, accountability, alignment, all of that, but in a very different way that actually does not use a management hierarchy. So it's a framework for self-management or running a company with no management hierarchy. Okay. Now, does this mean there are no managers? And that's exactly what it means. Uh, Interestingly, you could say there is management, but not managers. In other words, the functions of management, we still need alignment. We need to break down work and figure out who's doing what, right? We, We need accountability. We need the things that we look to managers to provide. Let's call that management. But we don't necessarily need to organize that in this top-down command hierarchy of people who can command other people what to do. That's the manager thing. Okay, right? Let me ask the question this way, Brian. Mm-hmm. If, if you think of it, and I'm sure everyone listening can visualize the typical org chart. Yep. The boxes. 
And in the boxes, we place managers. Mm-hmm. What happens in, in this, in a holacracy, what replaces the box? Yeah. So if you look at the org chart of my company or any of the uh, thousand others doing holacracy, what you'll see, uh, it, it looks much more like an organic picture of cells within uh, broader circles within broader circles. So uh, the human body is a great metaphor, right? Every cell has its own function, its own autonomy, right? Uh, And let's, you know, there's blood cells and muscle cells and nerves, all these different types of cells, and they each have their own little function. And they're autonomous. They have their own self-organizing internal process, right? There's no boss cell telling them what to do. But then you've got these broader structures like the organs, and the, the work of an organ, it doesn't violate the autonomy of the cells. The organ isn't telling the cell what to do or how to do it. What it's doing is taking an autonomous functioning cell and it's wrapping it together with a lot of other autonomous functioning cells into a larger autonomous whole function. So the heart, for example, integrates the muscle cells, the blood cells, the nerve cells, all these different cells, integrates tons of them together into a larger whole function which is itself just an autonomous single part of a larger whole function, right? A cardiovascular system, right? And this is nature's way of organizing for complexity at scale, right? What, and it's, it's a beautiful pattern. What it, it, it does is it, instead of breaking down complexity by lumping it all at, at the top, a CEO at the top of the command hierarchy and then trying to, to organize it all from there, it, it bakes autonomy into each piece. So there's, there's a, a self-organization to deal with complexity at every level. And if you look at the org chart, it looks very much like this cellular structure. You'll see these little uh, dots, call them roles, right? The uh, holacracy org chart. Yeah, if you look at yep, the org chart of a company running with holacracy, you'll see lots of roles. So it's a role-based system. Uh, every role has its own purpose to pursue and its own internal autonomy to self-organize how to do that. And y- you've got all these roles wrapped together in a circle, which is kind of like the organ here, mm-hmm. right? If the roles of the cells, the circles, the organ. And a circle is kind of organizing how all those roles work together, the, the intersection between the roles. But the circle itself is just like a role within a bigger circle, right? So it's kind of a fractal org chart, a fractal structure. So for example, in my company, uh, we have an outreach circle that just tries to spread the word about holacracy. I'm doing a role in that circle right now. I'm in our spokesperson role, right? And, and my role has a purpose and it has some accountabilities, which tell others what I'm responsible for and right, what they can count on me for. I have a lot of autonomy in that role to lead my role, to decide what I'm going to do in that role, how I'm going to express that purpose. But I'm within this outreach circle. And this outreach circle around it is what structures all the roles within. So there's lots of other roles in our outreach circle that I work with. And that broader circle is kind of breaking down the intersection. But my role of spokesperson is actually one of about 30 roles I fill. And those other roles are often in other circles, right? So I fill roles in six different circles. Uh, within this this overall organic work chart, and the structure itself is changing constantly. We can come back to that. So there's this; it's a living, evolving structure, right? But it's a very different way to visualize an organization from what we're used to. Oh, I love it! I love it. So, what does adopting holacracy make possible for the clients you've served that that they were struggling to give give fuller expression to yeah. before? Well, one, going back to what we were talking about, empowerment, right? It gives you not just empowering bosses, but a fundamentally empowering environment. So one of the golden rules, as I call it, of holacracy is when you fill a role and you have a purpose to express or some accountabilities to get done, you have the autonomy and the authority to make any decision or take any action to get your purpose expressed as long as there's not a rule against it. 
And that this is actually the opposite of the way most companies work today. And in most environments today, the implicit cultural norm is don't do anything you don't already normally do without getting permission. And you get permission either by talking to a boss or more often actually in most companies, calling a big meeting and socializing the decision and making sure everyone's bought into it. And that gives you the permission to go do something outside what you'd ordinarily do. And it's incredibly time consuming and, and it's a, a fundamentally disempowering structure right? Holacracy turns that on its head. So the basic rule is lead your role. Go be a CEO of your one role, and you might fill many roles, but for each, and make any decision you want. Any decision, even outside what you normally do, you can decide anything on behalf of the company. You can take any action on behalf of the company, unless there's a, a clear rule against it that we've created through our collective governance process. We can talk about that more in a minute. So what it does is, is create a fundamentally empowering environment where people know that instead of, you know, trying to, to kind of fight the system to drive change, the system supports a basic level of autonomy and leadership, self-leadership in every role. And then when we need to slow people down, we're going to add some speed bumps in their, their way. We're not going to, you know, start them in really slow vehicles and try to push them to go faster. We're going to give everyone a Ferrari, as a friend of mine says, right? The default is go fast and create tension. And we're going to learn from it and we're going to add the limits and the constraints when we find they're actually needed to keep the, the cohesion together with others. So you get a fundamentally empowering environment with a lot of autonomy, right? That's one. The other thing you get is a lot of adaptability. Uh, this structure, I mentioned our governance process, Holacracy in place of a manager telling the team how to break down the work, Holacracy adds a process in every team where anyone on the team can propose a change to any process, any role, any purpose on that team, anything they need to, any policy, right? So everyone involved in a team can drive change on that team. And that process is happening in every team, right? And, and what that does is it, it takes the, the static structures we're used to. It's really hard to change the way things get done. You know, the way things work around here is very static in most companies. And Holacracy right. makes that very dynamic. Uh, suddenly the system can learn from the individuals within driving change. So it gives you this agility, uh, this responsiveness to change. Hmm. Uh, it lets people use and harness their consciousness for the sake of the purpose of the company. Um, so there are many, many other benefits we can name, but I think two of the big ones are autonomy and uh, the agility. And actually one more that kind of goes hand in hand that I hear from CEOs or business leaders in particular, relief. Uh, there is so much pressure on the top. It's overwhelming complexity. The world, I've been there, the world of a CEO, it's overwhelming. And the pressure is huge. And it, it's not that Holacracy says, you know, hey, you can go, you know, uh, just hang out at the beach. We don't need you anymore. Rather, it, right. it's not about removing the power and the responsibility from the top or the control even. It, it's about raising it throughout the rest of the system. So you still might feel lots of pressure, but at least you know everyone else is too. Right. It's there's this sense of, uh, you know, everyone here can now be a fuller, better steward mm. of this organization and its purpose. Wow. And the burden isn't all on the top. So there's this release of burden that I hear from the, the leaders adopting it again and again and again. OK, so I, I was as you're talking, I'm listening, I'm processing this. So it depends where you're looking at this from. OK, you're looking from the top down. You see this relief of pressure. But if you're looking from the bottom up. I'm thinking maybe you see the, the removal of a bottleneck. Yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You see more, more ability to actually step up and lead your piece and drive change. And 
Um, and you know, that's, I don't mean to paint a purely rosy picture that can be hard. You know, when people are called to step in and take more responsibility and higher level of ownership of a purpose and really steward it, you know, that's like, it's like the first time people have kids, you know, suddenly there's real responsibility there in a whole new way. And, you know, you don't get to just give the kid back to someone else when you're done. It's yours to lead. <laughs> and there's a burden of responsibility, but a welcome one because it's purposeful. It's right. meaningful. And that's what I hear also from people within. The burden of responsibility is much higher. They, they have to step up and take on more, you know, and that, that's a challenge. Uh, they have to lead more, but it's right. more meaningful at the same time. Right. So, Brian, as I'm, I'm processing this, you know, I see a lot of things happening in a company. I see there, there are a lot of people who have been wanting to step up and lead at this level or work at this level that now have the freedom to do that. There's also the possibility that there's some that go, ooh, wow, you know, I, I don't want that level of responsibility or engagement. I like being a cog in the wheel. And so I guess there is some sorting out of those people in, in organizations. Uh, you know, there is. And at the same time, I'm constantly surprised when I see that, that shift happening. Uh, I'm surprised at how many people I think don't really want it. And what I find is maybe it wasn't them, it was the system around them, you know, and when you change the system around them, people that before were just, you know, they were punching a clock waiting uh, to get out of work, they're not really interested, suddenly step up and take some real leadership. Not everyone, you will lose some, you will lose some people that opt out, but But it's a smaller percentage than you might think. It absolutely is. You know, it's uh, when you give, when you put people in an environment where they have real meaningful work and real autonomy and really abil- the real ability to move the needle on something that matters, hmm. you know, so many people rise to that. So, Brian, how long, and I know there's not a standard answer to this, or I would be surprised if there is a standard, how long does it take a company to go from implementing to and I realize it's it's evolutionary to get all of the benefits, but when do they start reaching a tipping point and go, wow, you know, mm-hmm. we've really, we're really beginning to tap into the power that we felt was here from the beginning. Yeah. So uh, David Allen, uh, is he wrote the foreword of my book. He's the author of the book, Getting Things Done. And he's been running his company with Holacracy for about seven years now. And uh, when he first started, he intuitively said, I feel like this is a five-year journey. Hmm. And, you know, five years in, he said, yeah, you know, I I was really close, but now I think I'd say maybe five to 10-year journey. I I mean, it's a huge change. It's a massive cultural change. That said, the tipping point where you're starting to really feel the benefits is much, much quicker. That If you're doing it right, you've either got a good coach or you're just, you know, you've got the right people, the right training, you're doing it well. And there's lots of bad ways to do this, but if you're doing it well, maybe six months, uh, you start hitting a tipping point where you start feeling, wow, the benefits here, the ROI is starting to really show. Uh, But that's still the very beginning. Uh, This is a major change in the way people relate to power. Uh, It's a major change in the way people lead and use their own power, right? Uh, Relate to others' power. That's, uh, you know, you could ask, how long does it take somebody to master the art of being an effective manager in a management hierarchy, <laughs> right? That, you know, that's not a short-term journey. That's yeah. a lifetime journey. I was going to say a lifetime is what that takes. Yeah. Totally. And the same is true with holacracy, right? Really showing up and leading in this kind of decentralized, peer-to-peer distributed power environment, right? And figuring out how to use the tools you've got. You've got all these new tools with holacracy to drive change, but you have to figure out how to use the tools effectively. 
So, that's a long-term journey. Yeah, I've got several questions here, and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to sequence them. One, I want to go ahead and ask now, and then, then I want to come back and ask some more kind of specifics about holacracy. But you just said something that, that stirred so much curiosity on my part. Companies that have adopted holacracy and then experienced a uh, top leader shift that they've had a transition. What are some of the ones that have done that? I mean, do you see that happening? Is that, let me, let me frame the question a little better. Does holacracy create an environment where the baton can be passed more seamlessly? I think it can. And it also, you can set that up to not work, right? Like, so we've certainly seen some companies that uh, they're doing great, but they don't really embed it uh, at the top. And when they're handing off the ultimate power, you know, whatever the, the, the board is hiring a new CEO or whatever, if the board isn't really embedded with this and doing it, mm. Then we've seen cases where the new CEO comes in and says, what's this? And throws it out or whatever. Mm. That's also happened in bigger companies. We've had departments uh, like Google had a, a department doing holacracy until the broader management team just reorganized. And that reorganization meant that leader of that department was removed and two new leaders came in. The department was split. Each of those new leaders looked at this and said, what's this weird thing? And just tossed it out without further thought. <laughs> so it can kill it. But there's a, another side of that story. It does provide a way to transition power. That, uh, this is what David Allen did, actually. He's a, a great example of this. He wanted to exit the operational leadership of his company, right? He, he was, uh, as he says, he wasn't the right guy for that play. It wasn't his passion, his talent. He had been doing it too long. It was a burden. So he adopted holacracy at, at the top. It was, you know, the board uh, on down. And, uh, and as he was looking for a new person to come in and offload a lot of the work he had done, uh, before he found Holacracy, he started this journey. He was looking for a CEO, right? But then with Holacracy, he told the new CEO, he said, look, uh, you're going to come in and we're going to give you the CEO title because the rest of the world wants to see that. But internally to the company, you don't have CEO power, hmm. right? Uh, internally to the company, you're bound by the rules of Holacracy, which by the way, are actually documented in a constitution. So there's a constitutional power structure here. And you are just an agent in the system like anyone else. You're going to get a bunch of roles like anyone else. You're going to be able to lead your roles like anyone else. And you're going to be able to use the governance process of holacracy to change anything in the system, but you have to use it just like anyone else, mm. right? So, uh, and, and that was a really interesting way and it worked, right? They was able to bring in a, a new top leader while he exited, while retaining this empowering culture that was running things completely differently. Hmm. Right, it was embedded in the fabric. In in my company, we've actually gone as far as to adopt it in our legal bylaws. Right, so legally speaking, it is enshrined. It's enforceable in court if it needs to be. Right, hmm. it is. Uh, it's protected in this new way of of organizing and breaking down power. In the same way that in most conventional companies, you know, the the legal bylaws define a CEO role and what powers that has and all, all the the powers that are defined in a set of bylaws. We've done it, but we've defined a process in the bylaws. Hmm. By adopting the holacracy constitution that defines the rules of this game, right? And, and that allows that kind of handing off of power very, very uh, effectively while maintaining the, the core of how the organization is structured and functions. Okay. Um, when you look at it, how many contrast, when, when, if you were to normally contrast holacracy to uh, hierarchy, traditional structure, how many distinctions do you normally see? Uh, oh wow! It's it's uh, it's radically different. <laughs> okay. Are there a handful that yeah. you can just kind of walk us through? 
Yeah, and actually, the the a fun way to do this. There are two really big misconceptions. Okay, I was great. That about the differences this way. Yeah. So misconception number one: when people hear uh, no managers, which is what this is, there's nothing that looks like a management hierarchy once you fully adopted holacracy. One of the common misconceptions is that must mean no structure, hmm. right? Uh, that must mean anarchy and chaos. And the truth is, a company running with holacracy is actually more structured, not less than a management hierarchy. They're just arriving at the structure differently, right? Instead of managers breaking down structure, right? Uh, there's a governance process in every team that is creating structure and evolving it with everyone in the team contributing to that process. Mm-hmm. The output of that is more structure. There's more clarity of structure, not less, which you need. If you're going to give uh, people a lot of autonomy and power, they need to know the boundaries, the limits, the rules. They need to know what they can expect from their coworkers or you're going to have to use politics to get everything done, and that's a nightmare, right? So you need more clarity than you do in a management hierarchy to make this work. It just now, looks the very different. Yes, it is. And the structure is more dynamic, which is another kind of difference that comes with this. Instead of it being static and organized around people in status positions, the management hierarchy are these status positions, and it's a very static structure. It might get changed every few years in a reorg, but it's very static. With holacracy, it's incredibly dynamic, and it's not about people and status. It's about roles and a breakdown of purpose. So every role has a purpose, and those roles are dynamic. They're changing. The expectations on the roles are changing. Even the circle structures are changing. The circles you have are dynamic. And it's not organized around people, so there's a lot less ego involved, right? It's, it's organized around the needs of the work for the purpose. So you've got a completely different type of structure. It's not a command hierarchy of people that tell other people what to do. But it is a structure. It's a breakdown of how do we express this purpose? What are the roles we need involved? What are the boundaries between them? What are the expectations on them? Right? So you end up with structure that's much more real and meaningful. Mm-hmm. Right? In a management hierarchy, when was the last time you went and looked up something in your job description to figure out what to do in a day? Right? Like right. People do that. <laughs> with holacracy, you do reference the structure because it's meaningful and real because it came from the team's process of learning together. Mm-hmm. So the structure is there, it's clear, and it's real. So that's one major set of shifts. Another common misconception, that's a great way to kind of hit on this, uh, people often assume when you don't have managers, decisions must be made by groups in some kind of big consensus-seeking process. And that also couldn't be further from the truth. With holacracy, decisions are more often made autocratically than in a management hierarchy. The difference is they're not made autocratically by somebody with positional power up a hierarchy, it's distributed autocracy. So much more like society, I don't call meetings with my neighbors, right? When I want to you know, redecorate my kitchen or whatever, it's my kitchen, I make my decisions, I lead it. I have a lot of autonomy to make autocratic decisions in my area. Now, if I know my neighbors are good at interior design, I'm welcome to get their input. I can collaborate all I want. But I know at the end of the day, it's my kitchen and the burden of leadership is on me. Hmm. With holacracy, you get the same thing. It's lots of autonomy. That doesn't mean less collaboration. It can actually liberate more collaboration. It just means at the end of the day, you don't need to get buy-in and consensus to have the power to make a decision. You just know your, your area, your boundaries. You know what's yours to lead. You know the purpose you're serving and doing it. And you know ultimately what matters is that purpose, not how your coworkers all feel and getting their comfort and buy-in. The purpose trumps that. So what you you can do is tap your coworkers, get their input, get their ideas, and then lead your role for its purpose. 
Yeah, I've heard you say that that someone you know in a in that position, and I say position not in the hierarchy, but in that position of uh, having a decision to make, but not yet knowing what that decision is, consults other people not to get their permission or buy-in, but to get information so they make a better decision. And then all of a sudden, there's that moment when they have the epiphany. Oh, now I know what to do. The decision can is effective right then. Oh, this is it. Yep. Uh, so thanks for your help. You helped me understand the decision to take, but I didn't have to get your permission. I needed your information and perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, you know, that's a really empowering environment when you, well, here's an example, even notice the difference. You know, let's say you're trying to find a new platform for your website. We're, we're redoing our website now. So this is alive for me. Uh, you know, the difference in a management hierarchy, you might see somebody showing up in a meeting and saying, hey, guys, we need to decide on a new platform for our, our uh, website, right? What platform should we use? You know, and the, the discussion that follows is an attempt to get consensus and buy-in, often for something where that person already has an idea of what they want to decide, and they just want everyone else's you know, buy-in so that they're not, you know, uh, they don't get judged by, by moving forward or whatever, um, versus a much more empowering stance is, hey, team, in my role of website manager or whatever, I need to choose a new platform for the website, mm. right? And for me to make my best possible decision, I'd like some input uh, from your roles on these things. Give me your input, and then I'm going to call it and go make my decision and leave my role. Right? That's a much more empowered stance. There's a lot more I language, interestingly, than we language, but there's more we showing up and giving input. It's a fascinating thing that happens when you own the autonomy and the power to make a decision instead of deferring it to the group, right? which is a way of hiding and, and not owning your autonomy and your power. You know, we, I sometimes jokingly say, we is a terrible worker, right? We assign a lot of things to we, but we doesn't do them, right? Uh, we makes very slow, <laughs> very, very long decisions and then doesn't follow through. I said that in a client once and it turned out there was somebody on the team named we. That <laughs> 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 was, uh, yeah, an aside. But yeah, when you show up with this I language of owning your power, hey, in my role, the team, we have charged me with leading this role and making this decision for this purpose, and I know my responsibilities, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow through on them and let me make this decision. Okay, so you've seen me, eyes rolling up in my head as, as I'm listening to this discussion, because this one has, has really given me a lot to think about, Brian, uh, because I do a lot of work around servant leadership, right? And, and in servant leadership, we talk about we over me, and you're not really just talking about not just a language audit, you're talking about what's really happening. Yeah. And what's yes. really happening, I may be using the I word to make the final decision, but I'm really using a lot more we in the process to get there. There's almost, I, I could jokingly say it like this, we over me, yes, but I over we. Yeah. And what I mean by that, <laughs> it's not me, mine, you know, my ego, my status, my like, you know, my advancement, my politics, my agenda, whatever. It's, but it's, is I, as a conscious individual human, I am stewarding something on behalf yeah. of this purpose. And I want you, it's I plus you, right? It's, I want your input, I want your ideas, or I have an accountability here to connect with your role, let's do that, you know? But it, it's uh, everyone involved in that system owning that stance of ultimately the driver of change in an organization are the people, and it's individuals making a decision and acting right? We doesn't act. I act and you act and we can act together, but that's still I plus you acting, right? And 
So it's an interesting shift. And, and I, I look at it as a, a step past the more consensus-oriented we cultures, which I do think is a huge step from the more egoic, me-centered cultures that came before it. Right? But the next step is within the we, recognizing there are a lot of eyes here, a lot of individual points of consciousness that can, can lead their peace. And they can do it together without stepping on others along the way. So it's, I'm leading my role and you're leading your role. And we know where the boundaries are between us, right? I have great relationships with my neighbors, right? We have, I have a sense of we in my community, right? And, and yet I still lead my pieces of it. And I respect their autonomy to lead their pieces. And I trust them. And we're adults together, right? It's not a codependent mess, nor a parent-child management hierarchy. It's individual autonomous adults leading our pieces together. All right, Brian. So I am watching our time. I can't believe how much time has passed in this conversation. Uh, that for folks that are just energized and want to learn more, where do they go? Because I've been on your site. There's plenty of more that you have to share. Where do they go? What do they get? Yeah. So a number of possibilities. Uh, if you want just a, a cheap way to get a nice uh, next step, my book, it's titled Holacracy. Uh, it's misspelled all the time. It's spelled H-O-L-A. H-O-L-A-C-R-A-C-Y. Uh, you can find it wherever you buy books. So Holacracy, uh, our website, holacracy.org, has videos you can hear from the, in the words of people doing this every day. We've got lots of videos on there, uh, interviews with people actually living in companies powered by Holacracy. So uh, lots of videos there, free on the website, uh, lots of other resources on the web. If you're interested in a deeper dive, there are trainings uh, done. We have a whole network of licensed uh, coaches that do this work. Uh, there's trainings all over the world, and there's coaches that can work with companies and help take them through it. You can find all of that on the website, holacracy.org. Uh, you can also reach out to my organization and uh, just tell us what you're interested in, and we'll get it to the right role that has the right purpose <laughs> to uh, connect with you, uh, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. So thanks, Brian, and, and we'll include that in the show notes. Is there something you'd like to say that helps wrap this up and put a bow on this conversation for you? Yeah, you know, let me uh, end with a story of what I, I see this enabling and connecting back. A lot of our talk was about empowerment and uh, stewarding power for a purpose. So here's a true story from my company. Um, I, I mentioned I fill my spokesperson role and I get to spread holacracy. I work with another role uh, called our casting agent role. The casting agent books me for talks. And I do a lot of speaking at conferences and travel all over doing it. So we get a lot of invites and the casting agent has to screen all those invites, right? And one day, years ago, our casting agent was feeling disempowered because she'd, she'd screen these invites. She'd spent a lot of time negotiating with the conference uh, host, and then she presented to me at the end of her process, and I'd say, no, I'm not going to go to that. It's the wrong audience or market's not big enough, whatever. And, you know, she felt disempowered. So think about how that would work in most management hierarchies. You know, it's, it's uh, right. It, it's difficult. But here's what actually happened. She showed up at the governance meeting of our team, right? Our outreach circle in this case. She shows up at the governance meeting and she says, I'd like to expect something new from your spokesperson role so I can do my job better, my purpose better. I'd like to expect that your role is accountable for defining your criteria for what you'll accept and not. Because if I could actually see that defined and written down, I could use it at the beginning of my process and give you high quality stuff that won't waste my time and you'll say yes to, right? So it took about two minutes in this governance meeting for that expectation to get added to my role. And then she was able to turn to me after the meeting and say, so when do you think you'll have that done for me by? Now, the interesting thing about this story, I'm the founder of the company and she was our newest hire right out of college, right? 
in what organizations do you know where the newest hire right out of college can get an expectation added onto the founder in two minutes and then turn to him and say, so when are you going to have that done for me by? Because it was all about the purposes. It wasn't about the status and the egos and the politics. It was about she had a purpose to do and she needed something from my role to do her purpose better and it didn't get in the way of my purpose to do it, right? So that enables a completely different kind of organization than what we're used to. Um, and, you know, whether it's holacracy or not, I guess as, as a parting thought, I, I just encourage everyone to question the assumption that we started with in the beginning of this talk, right? The assumption that the only way to get work breakdown and accountability and alignment and scale is the management hierarchy. There are other methods. Holacracy is one framework. And I think our world and the purposes we serve n- need us to do that inquiry and look for other ways. Mm-hmm. Well, Brian, thanks for joining us. This has been a delightful conversation, and, and I'm, I'm trusting you, the listener, that you've got plenty to think about now, and, and that wheels are turning, and that you're questioning the assumptions that have been longly held in your organization, in your mind, and, and let's see different ways to unleash purpose in the world, because we certainly want more purpose in the world. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Brian. There you have it. An overview and an introduction to holacracy as a way to engage everyone in the organization as co-creators of a shared reality. Love the conversation, Brian. Thanks for joining us. I'd really love to know what's lingering in your mind. Here are a few things in mind that if you're looking for a new approach to unlock the potential to drive change in your organization, then perhaps holacracy is really worth a deeper die for you. I loved this insight. If you don't know your limits, you don't know your freedom. And I wonder how much innovation and energy is lost in organizations by people waiting for permission to act. A quotation I heard years ago and I've used so often in in consulting work with organizations is, Epoxy is the lubricant with which we grease the wheels of progress here. If you don't know what epoxy is, it's glue. You know, I've been in organizations where it just seems that it is so hard to do anything. So holacracy sets this default mode as go fast and create tension and then add limits and constraints when they're needed rather than just doing everything at a snail's pace crawl. The folks at Holacracy One were generous to share a couple of the books with us. So if you're interested in receiving a free copy of the book, drop me an email. And if you're one of the first two to respond, you'll get it free. That's Kevin at HigherPurposePodcast.com. Hey, join me next week. We're going to start this anniversary celebration as we're celebrating one year of Higher Purpose Podcast. So I'll be with you next week reflecting on this first year of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Until then, remember to live, love, and lead with purpose. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Remember, if you ever think that your work could be less ordinary, there's not much between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at 13weekstoextraordinary.com.